Banner here. Welcome to another edition of this Afropolitan Life podcast, where we have intelligent conversations and thoughtful commentary with Afropolitans from around the world about our stories, our community, and our lives. This episode is brought to you by Marha, designer handbags that define African sophistication for the discerning woman anywhere in the world. Each handbag is made in Africa by African hands using the best raw materials ethically sourced in Africa. Visit marha.com, M-A-R-H-A-W, and enjoy 30% off your purchase. Welcome to the podcast. Mabel and Clarissa here with another episode of this Afropolitan Life podcast. And today we have a special guest helping us to uncover an important issue in women's health. Today we're talking about fibroids, the health issue that plagues three times more black women than any other race. So African-American women are nearly three times more likely to develop uterine fibroids and suffer with more severe symptoms like heavy menstrual bleeding, anemia, pelvic pain, um, just to name a few. And today we have Tanika Gray, president of the White Dress Project, to tell us why. Tanika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you on. We also have Mabel. Hey, I'm here. Go ahead, Mabel. Hey, guys. <laughs> Mabel's going to take us away because she is so passionate about uterine fibroids. Mabel, why don't you tell us your story? Sure. So first of all, Tanika, welcome to the podcast. I feel very, very honored to have this chance to talk with you. I've been stalking your organization for a long time. Um, And I pray one day when you guys um, have an event in D.C., I will definitely be able to participate. But um, just like, yeah, I don't. Well, just as a side note, would you be having any events coming up soon? (laughs) Yeah, so what's so interesting about D.C. is that when I started this organization, I had no idea that, you know, it would grow to the level of having chapters in different um, states. And obviously, you know, you always have like that hidden vision, um, but I really just wanted to start something for myself and start a support group for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So now the fact that I'm talking about, we have chapters in the DMV area is so exciting. So yes, I will connect you with our DC um, chapter presidents who are Jennifer Branson and Rashida Fairnot. Um, And we had a phenomenal launch um, last July Mm -hmm. um, in DC and um, it was a great event. Um, and we've also gotten the District of Columbia to declare July as Fibroids Awareness Month. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Why don't you so tell us a little bit about, um, tell us about what is it? I mean, for people listening who don't know what it is that you do, what is the White Dress Project? Why is it called the White Dress Project? And what are you guys, how are you guys affecting change? Okay. So I'll start um, with what the White Dress Project is. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our main mission is being dedicated to raising the awareness of uterine fibroids. As you mentioned in your introduction, 80% of women by the time they're 50 will have some type of a fibroid, fibroid symptom, um, and that is three times more prevalent in African-American and Caribbean women. Um, So that number grows even more. Um, so when I hear those types of numbers, I know that that is considered an epidemic or at least should be considered an epidemic. Um, 80% of anything 
in any group of people happening anywhere is something serious. Mm. Um, so the start of the White Dress Project actually is very personal for me. I have been suffering with fibroids um, probably since I was about 14 years old. I've always had very heavy periods. Um, I was always that girl that, you know, walked around with pads in her car, two pairs of <laughs> leggings, two pairs of underwear. Mm. Yeah, have never worn tampons, um, all because of the excessive bleeding, uterine bleeding that fibroids can cause. Um, so I'll, I'll fast forward the story a little bit. I, you know, dealt with it throughout school and, you know, college and never went to white parties, um, you know, never, never participated in things um, that would require me to wear white. Um, and I never thought about it until I got married in 2012 and my husband and I, you know, you, you get married and then you start to think about, you know, what's the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so obviously we started discussing, you know, our plans to start a family. I went to a doctor, um, here in Atlanta and he basically said to me that my uterus was so compromised that we would need to save our money because the only way I would would be a mother is if I got a surrogate. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, hearing that type of news shortly after you get married um, is devastating because you, you feel like, you know, whatever your beliefs are about marriage, babies, how you're supposed to do it, um, I always felt like, well, you know, once I get married and, and finish school, then, you know, I'll start to think about those things. And then to hear that, no, it's not going to be that simple, um, is a problem. Um, so shortly after that, um, I found another doctor and why it's always important to get a second opinion. And if, if no one else hears anything that I say today, I think it's so important, ladies, to get a second opinion, a third opinion, fourth opinion, um, because I got a second opinion. Um, and the doctor said to me, yes, my uterus is extremely compromised. However, we're going to pray. We're going to, you know, do whatever measures we can to reduce the symptoms and then have surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so I took the, I took a form of birth control. I don't even want to put the name out there because I, I can't remember if it was like Depo or Lupron, but I, I took something that was supposed to reduce the symptoms. What that did for my fibroids is really exasperate the problem. So it basically um, caused my fibroids to start to break apart. And I was... Um, my doctor explains it, that my fibroids were really trying to pass through my birth canal because their blood supply, because of this birth control product, their blood supply had been diminished. So it's basically, they're like in my body, like, what's going on? Where's our blood? Where's the food at? <laughs> Where's the food at? Exactly. And it's like, you know, it's going crazy in there. So I started to have these contractions, just like if you're pregnant. And I remember my husband being like, oh, my God, what's happening? And I'm like, I literally feel like pain mm -hmm. is just so intense every, like, three minutes. And he's like, 
like you mean like contractions and I'm like yeah <laughs> so it's like you're birthing a baby like you were birthing yeah, something exactly. and was this a good thing exactly. was the, the fact that it was breaking no. up the, the fibroids so that wasn't the point of you getting on birth control no okay. no that that definitely wasn't the point the point of of doing the birth control was to cut off the blood supply and hopefully they would start to shrink if they shrink to uh uh I guess medically um you know, medically surgical, uh, I guess, size, comf- yeah. size, right, for doctors, then that's when we would have surgery. Right. But I guess because mine, you know, had been going on for so long, they were just like, what's going on? Don't cut our blood supply. We're not having it. My question, though, with this is, though, mm-hmm. with the size issue, and Mabel, you can chime in here, why can't yeah. they just go in and just take them out like I'm, compl- I'm well, completely, I think, completely organ- I th- ignorant about this so I'm coming at this with a completely not knowing what I think how fibroids to work. add to your question Carissa would be it, not just size but also maybe number yeah. because Tanika from what it sounds like and maybe you can answer this was it because of the number of fibroids that they decided to you know put um, put you on birth control or was it due to the size yeah, so I think um, that's a combination. It's a combination um, because one of the things um, that I think a lot of patients discover when they are in the process of having surgery is that an ultrasound or even a pelvic exam or even like a, uh, I forgot the, the medical name for the uh, MRI that you do on your pelvis, um, but those uh, tests show only a particular amount of fibroids. Oh, yeah. So, so for example, two of my board members um, for the White Dress Project, both of them had surgery um, within two weeks. One of them had surgery last week, and one of them had surgery the week before. And this is their second myomectomy, which is, is the surgical removal of fibroids. And both of them were both told a number pre-surgery. So one was told that she had nine fibroids, went in for surgery, 17. One was mm-hmm. told she had five fibroids, went in for surgery, 13. Oh. I was told that I had 13 fibroids. And when I had my emergency surgery, 27 fibroids. Wow. I think you're so right when it comes to how misleading the ultrasound could be. I think, granted, it is a very important scan, but... um and I don't know if this would be an appropriate point to interject here with my personal history with fibroids, but I was just like you. Like when you were talking about the leggings and the pads, I just almost wanted to cry because I remember I remember that that season of my life where yeah, yeah. I was afraid to work. I was afraid to sit down. I would go to parties and stand, or I would have extra pads in my glove compartment, in the trunk. Yeah. I, it right. was everything that I would think about. I, I remember telling one of my girlfriends, I was like, you know, at times I hate the drive home if I'm on my period because I know I'm going to like bleed into my car if I'm sitting into traffic. And I hope right. that's not too much information, but we're all women here. But it is a very, it's a very private and exasperating issue that women go through. And it's amazing that a lot of women go through it and they never really, they never really think to kind of question and say that maybe there's a deeper problem here because I was in my teens going through this and in my early 20s going through this. But every time I Googled it, 
you know, everything came up and said, if you have a heavy period, some people have heavier periods and some people have lighter periods. There was nothing that really caught my attention to say that there could be an internal issue that you need to check up. I went to my OBs and they never said it. And so for me, what happened was the same thing that happened to you, Tanika. My husband and I were planning um, a family and I, and I, I went in for my annual blood test. And at that time I was on my period. So when I took my blood test, my doctor called me back within an hour. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, why? She's like, your blood count is so low. I thought you would have like passed out by now. And And that was when she said, you need to come in again and we need to find out what's going on. And through the, um, the, the following test, it came to terms that I had fibroids. I had many fibroids. And I'm looking at these people like, I am the healthiest person you should know. Like, I take my vitamins. Yeah. I go to my doctor's appointment. I drink my water. I try to exercise. But when I really think about all of the, when I really think hard, I'm like, you know what? I probably was suffering with this for a long time. But um, I, I was never told what to look for. And also I was kind of coached, I had coached myself to think that everything is, it is what it is, but. Yeah. Why hasn't it been considered an epidemic yet? Because it just sounds like over the last maybe 10 years, um, it's become more and more of an issue for black women. Like you were saying, if it's 80% of black women um, in the U.S. and in the Caribbean, I don't know what the number is on the you know, on the African continent for Black women there, but oh, even higher. It's even higher. Okay, so why hasn't and why isn't it part of normal like checkup procedure? And two, why hasn't it been considered an epidemic where we're actually researching and fig- trying to figure out what the problem is? Yeah, so that that is such a, a heavy question. And I, I want to touch on a couple of points that Mabel brought up about, um, and then I, I definitely will answer my perspective on that or my opinion on that question. Mm-hmm. Um, but even a couple of points that Mabel brought up, um, which is one of our main tenants in our organization, which is as Black women, and and one of the things I do want to point out that Fibroids is definitely not just a black woman's thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a woman's thing. Like white women get them, not at the the uh, prevalence of black women, but Asian women, Latino women also have um, a very high occurrence rate. Um, so it really is a woman's issue. But yes, um, black women are predisposed to it more. I had four blood transfusions um, due to fibroids and due to anemia. And so it, you know, the conversation that Mabel talks about having with her doctor when they're like, you know, how are you like even answering the phone right now? Right. As once your hemoglobin levels get below, I believe the normal range is nine. nine yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's nine. Right. So you know, I have been walking around with hemoglobin like five, four. My doctor is like, I don't even understand like how you're going to work. Yeah. And my body. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I think, yes, that's one of the issues that is also, you know, of symptomatic fibroids. Another thing, which is the main tenant of our organization, is we do this thing called suffering in silence. So we don't talk about it at all. 
Um, I cannot tell you how many people have emailed us through our organization and said, you know, the moment we saw a post where somebody is sharing, everybody's like, yeah, me too, my aunt, my cousin, my sister. There have been so many women that have said, I didn't even know my best friend or my sister was going through this until, you know, we happened to see an article and I, I mentioned it to my girlfriend and she's like, yeah, I've been dealing with that for so long. Mm-hmm. So a part of the problem is that we as women don't talk about these issues below the belt. And we've been so conditioned to, you know, you don't talk to anyone about your period because it's your period. Who wants to talk about your period? But I think about when I started this organization, I think about, you know, before I got married, how many boyfriends have I been like, well, no, I'm not spending the night because I don't know what's going to happen to your mattress. (laughs) You know, walk around with like, towels in my trunk if I'm going on a date and like have to put a towel on the seat How like limiting that's just that's the fear awesome. I can imagine like the fear around your heart you have no idea like yeah I don't know why I'm getting so emotional thinking about this because like it's so and I'm I always think like how many like teenagers how many of my students when I was teaching were struggling suffering with this you know yes. like it's yes. very, it's very embarrassing and exasperating, and you feel like you have no control. Tanika, I don't even know if like, and I feel like there will be so many diversions in this, but like even sometimes for me, I always thought like, well, maybe if I just ate certain things. Like I used to kind of like tell myself like, okay, when you're on your period, you can't eat X, Y, Z. I couldn't eat any sugar, couldn't eat any bread. Like I was very, very meticulous about foods because I thought, okay, maybe it's my diet that's causing this. Right. And and then at times, honestly, I did see maybe a slight change, but then, you know, of course, like you're just going to live your life. You're not going to think about it for just that one week of the month. But I, I feel like for women who have struggled with heavy periods, they try to find, you know, it's like you try to find a strategy to cope. Right. And you know what? As women, right, we're fixers. You know, we deal with it. We're taught to keep it moving. We're taught to juggle. Um, and I think the dietary conversation is a conversation that needs to be ramped up. Um, but I will say that with a caveat and I will say that with the disclaimer that obviously none of us are doctors and, you know, my hope is that we'll continue this conversation and I can even, you know, get a few doctors to join the conversation and even get, uh, some holistic practitioners to join the conversation because there is a growing number of women who are trying to figure it out naturally. Um, but there are a host of doctors that I've interacted with that are like, no, just because you stop eating sugar doesn't mean that your fibroids are going to disappear. But I know that there are a lot of holistic, um, practitioners who would completely disagree with that. Um, so my organization is determined to figure it out like, okay, well, let's get some, none of us are doctors and the doctors don't know everything. Holistic practitioners don't know everything, but there has to be a balance. And I think one of the things that makes fibroids um, so difficult to converse about and so difficult to move the needle forward about is that there's so many variations in symptoms. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. example, Clarissa, you will have 
heavy periods. You will look like you're eight months pregnant all the time. One of our, our board members, um, that was her main concern. Her periods weren't that bad, but everywhere she went, people were like, oh my God, when are you due? And she's like, lady, I've never been pregnant in my life. Mm. You know, so it's, it's, there's so many variations. Some people have heavy periods. Some yeah. people have infertility. And when I had my surgery, um, had the 27 removed, I was like, okay, this has got to be because of what I eat and yeah. I'm not going to eat, you know, red meat, sugar, no more chicken, no dairy, <laughs> no more dairy. And I promise you, I went on a strong, heavy vegan diet for about a year. And Clarissa and Mabel, my fibroids came back in about a year and a half. And, you know, some would argue, well, is it that six months in between, you know, you getting off of a vegan diet? Mm -hmm. And I would say, but what was happening when I was on the vegan diet? Somehow they were still growing because fibroids mm -hmm. just pop up in six months. Interesting. And even if... What, what is it that we're eating that can exasperate it so quickly? Um, you know, so we don't we don't even have enough yeah, time. But once you once you start started talking about blood transfusions, Tanika, I was like, this is beyond a reproductive issue for women. This is life or death. I mean, seriously, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is life it or death. Is. And it I wish is. we talked about it more. But I need to know why is it higher among Black women? There has to be something. I mean, if, exactly. I just, that to me is crazy. I know you said that it's a woman's issue, but why is it so prevalent in black women? And why, maybe because we're talking about it more now, but why over the last 10 years has it, has there been an uptick in it? I know a lot more women with fibroids now than I heard about back in the day. Like I remember my aunt had it a long time ago and she, I mean, she got pregnant and my, my cousin came out really little. Um, but that was the most I had heard about it. And until, you know, recently, I've just been hearing about it more and more and more. Maybe, again, maybe it's because we're talking about it more. Yeah, I think it's just because we're just, we're just starting to get more vocal. And the thing yeah. is, men can talk about, you know, pardon the, the, the expression, but like their, their issues below the belt all day long. Yeah. And because they talk about it, they, yeah, <laughs> they get pills and, and it's cool and, you know, like we, that's that's my thing with the White Dress Project. We got to make it cool and we got to get out of this idea that we can't talk about it. I would um, kind of um, disagree with you a little bit, Clarissa, in terms of, you know, the uprise in the conversation. Yes, the uprise in the conversation is happening in, in this generation. However, my mother, great-grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother had fibroids. It's that idea of we don't talk about those things. I remember, you know, I'm originally from Jamaica. So the idea of even like old school, like washing your underwear, and hanging them out to dry. It's like, you don't ever let a man see your underwear. Like yeah. it's that type of, <laughs> of, you know, just privacy, privacy yeah. that we held onto. And now I think, you know, this uprise um, that you're talking about is, is, is very true, um, but I think it's now we're just starting to be like, forget about it. Like this is happening too much, and we got to talk about it. So, um, so you said you were going to answer this question, but the epidemic part—it's happening. Yeah, it's here. Why yeah. hasn't it been declared an epidemic, or at least been part of the routine checkup for Black women, especially? Yeah, I, 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 
I don't know. And I think I think the epidemic thing, you know, when I talk to legislators about this, unfortunately, the first thing they ask me is, um, is anyone dying? And it's and, you know, I've gotten a lot of support, um, you know, advocacy wise from legislators in terms of, you know, moving the conversation forward. But if I'm to be candid about some of the deep conversations that we do have, that is the question. And I really think it comes down to, um, you know, when I think about it, my mother, a part of this, and, you know, you talk about getting emotional, Mabel, my mother lost two sets of twins to fibroids, complications with fibroids. I'm an only child. I was the only one of her children who survived. And I would argue to any legislator that a miscarriage in a woman is a death. And I may not, you know, have a terminal illness, However, every time I've had to have a blood transfusion, I've put my life at risk. Every woman that has had a myomectomy or hysterectomy puts her life at risk. One of my board members was just telling me the other day about a woman who reached out to her because of the White Dress Project and, you know, was telling her, I'm going in for my myomectomy, pray for me, you know, keep me lifted up and died on the operating table because she was just bleeding so profusely. So it infuriates me when I hear people tell me, you know, well, maybe your organization would grow if you connected this to uterine cancer. Mm. Or maybe, you know, if you talked about, um, you know, HPV and how that can be linked or, or you know, just, just broaden it to uterine, uterine issues. And I, I am so shocked that they would give such a response because that's not the point. And that's so biased, I feel, just because it's not it's not killing women at in a, a crazy rate doesn't mean that it isn't an epidemic. It doesn't mean that it matters to it matters to it matters. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and it's 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 crazy be, that you mentioned that. And I'm sorry what happened to your mother, but I feel like that story probably is another female story and that they they can't come out and say that. Or they don't even look at it like that. Well, people right. just deem it like, well, miscarriages happen. But like, no, you. there was something that that exacerbated that situation. Right. And even the condition with um, Henrietta Lacks um, from the 1950s. And um, I encourage everyone to, you know, look up her story. Oprah is about to, I think I just saw the yeah. promo. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and her whole story was that um, she went into a doctor at John Hopkins for excessive uterine bleeding. And they found out that it, I believe it was uterine cancer. Um, and then she died shortly after that. And they've used, they used her cells unbeknownst to her and un, obviously because she was dead, but unbeknownst to her family, um, used her cells and have uh, cured um, so many diseases including, I think, polio. Um, So I bring that up to say that, no, this has been happening. And excessive uterine bleeding, you know, I often think to myself, did Henrietta Lacks have fibroids? You know what I mean? Um, So I bring that up to say that this has been an epidemic, and I think we just have not spoken about it. And I I hate to, 
to, you know, bring it here, but I really feel like if this were um, a male issue, um, I just feel like it would be just higher on the priority the list. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know, you know, the funding is so low. And every time I think about the work that I'm doing with the White Dress Project, it really is every day a labor of love and a grassroots movement. Mm. And I think, um, obviously, by now in the conversation, you know, your viewers can um, probably figure out where the name comes from. But it's really the fact that I walked into my closet um, after surgery and I was like, oh, my God, I don't have any white in here. And, you know, that sounds so superficial, like, oh, my God, thank Thank goodness you even have a closet, you know, all <laughs> world problems. But when you delve into that thought, it's really like, Tanika, this is how you sacrificed your quality of life. And, you know, why everywhere in your trunk, there's like a hidden cosmetic bag, <laughs> exactly with pads in it. And, you know, every corner of my house are pads at work, in my office drawer, pads, like, you know, even the mental component of it, um, you know, every time I get up from a seat, period on or not, I look, I look at the seat. Look back. <laughs> what is that like mental trauma? Right. Like we're not even, even delving into that. So it's like, there's so many components that should make this conversation an epidemic. And obviously I'm determined and, and the people who have supportive supported the White Dress Project are determined to bring it to that national and international level where this conversation is is talked about and legislators and the people who can influence change in terms of funding will now see that this is an epidemic and, and we don't we shouldn't have to prove it. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. If I had a clapping button, I would insert that right here. Absolutely. <laughs> and then also, Tamika, you mentioned something that came to my attention the other day. You know, when I am like on TV One or BET and the commercials pop up and they they have these um, offers for women to um, serve as case studies for fibroids mm-hmm. and and I feel like I see those commercials the most or if, if anything only on my black tv stations so I wonder if there is you know the medical community is rising up and trying to answer and seek out answers in regards to uterine fibroids and if women are responding to that especially black women are women do you think that black women are coming out saying that they want an answer you know, I think it begins, of course, yes, sharing our stories, but are, do you feel like the Black female community is coming out saying that we, we, we're, we're here and we want answers? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm such an optimistic person and I'm, I live in this space of like hopefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to go out and, and say, yes, we are. Um, but, you know, if I'm to be completely transparent, um, I'm on a um, stakeholder group for Duke University, and um, it's called Compare UF. And right now, we are even having um, struggles getting women to participate in these things. So while there there is like a uprise in this um, kind of marketing. 
for fibroids and marketing, I will say for a particular um, procedure, which is UFE, uterine fibroid embolization, um, which is, it, it is a procedure that kind of, um, there's some pellets that are, are uh, put into your, your uterus and they, or they go directly into fibroids and they are supposed to stop the bleeding. Like I said, disclaimer again, I'm not a doctor, but I encourage everyone to look up UFE as well. But there are certain, um, you know, uh, issues with, with that as well. So I do believe that there is this rise for women to have non-surgical options mm-hmm. um, because, you know, my surgery that I had is very invasive. Like I got the straight bikini cut, so I'm pretty slim but every time I wear a bikini, because I have keloid skin, you know, I can, you can see my scar. Before we get into some of the, some of the solutions that are presented for um, women uh, when they're, when they go to their doctors to kind of remove the surgery, remove the um, fibroids or how to deal with it. Um, you know, we've dwelt, we've talked a little bit about, you know, why this is happening um, or what the problem is rather and what some of the challenges surrounding it. Are. And we've also kind of talked a little bit about why we think it's happening, especially to black women. Um, but first, can you guys tell me, I mean, just in your experience, because you guys have been around it the most and have had personal experience with this problem, what are some of the myths and misinformation that women carry around about this condition? One thing about, um, you know, things that we use to heal ourselves is that a part of it is in your own self belief, you know, like your own belief system. I know, I will say this, that one of the things that we hear in our community a lot is castor oil pack, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So like heating these packs up and then putting them on your belly and, and somehow, um, that kind of reducing them. So I think there are a lot of myths out there or a lot of, um, I'll say theories out there. Um, I know another one is because we uh, perm our hair. I've heard that one. I've heard that And I have asked doctors specifically about castor oil packs and perming your hair. And um, they have said it has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. However, there is a conversation around estrogen um, and estrogen dominance. And why, if we have so much estrogen in our body, fibroids feed off of estrogen. And could that be the birth control with the increase in birth control and with the earlier, with the earlier taking of birth control? Um, does that, have people kind of questioned that around? Yeah, uh, people have questioned that. Yeah, but it's have. funny that birth control is one of the things that is used. To cure it, right? Or to, right, right, right. to shrink <laughs> them or to eliminate them. So uh, I'm telling you, ladies, we could have these conversations for the next five hours about... <laughs> myths and what people are doing. But the point is, we just need to get some money behind it so that we can have the people who are qualified researchers and scientists and doctors and even have holistic practitioners join the conversation. Because like this myth stuff, like, no, forget the myth. We need answers. (laughs) What's the deal? Like what's happening? 
um, you know, what is the genetic makeup? Okay, because my mother and my grandmother and my great grandmother have That's had them. Yeah. Does that does that mean that I that my daughter is gonna have them? That I'm predisposed, uh, you know? But then you hear conversations like, yeah, I'm the only one out of four girls in my family that has them, and my mother never had them. I never had them, right? Huh? That was my situation too. My mother never had them. It was never, none of my aunties, none of my grandmothers. So it was kind of random. And I kind of felt like, you know, my body had betrayed me (laughs) to an extent because, you know, like, it's like, it's not in my blood. You know, I try to do the right things, you know, eat right and exercise. And yet I'm, I've been plagued with this. Right. And and also what was even more depressing was that I was young, you know, like, and it was never some, I had heard about fibroids, but it was always like an auntie thing. Like auntie so-and-so had them after she had kids. Right. So-and-so had them in her later years. I never thought that I could be 23 or 22 or whatever having to deal with this or even to have to think about surgery or about my uterus <laughs> to this extent. Okay. So surgery, is surgery the only option? Like what are some, I, I heard that's like the last option. And I don't know. I could, I could speak to my experience and I'm not a doctor. I just could speak of personal experience. But for me, when I found out I had fibroids, at the time, they were small. They they were just a few centimeters. Um, there were probably three. And my doctor said, you know, just go about your life. You know, you could take birth control if you want. You don't have to. Um, but surgery shouldn't be an option. Just try to, you know, try to get pregnant and we'll deal with it later. And I went about my life and tried to get pregnant and deal with it later. And I would preface this to say that my fibroids weren't an issue of infertility, but it was really an issue in regards to my way of life. And then a year later, when I went to check up on them again, they grew slightly, but then that's when they said, okay, you might want to consider um, surgery. So I think that it depends on your doctor in terms of what they would suggest to you, whether you go for a second opinion or not. But some would say, if, it's, if, it's, if you want to, you can do it. If they get too big, you can do it. And in some cases, I feel like doctors were just pushing me to just get pregnant and, and worry about the fibroids later. I got that a lot. Like, oh, just try to get pregnant and deal, we'll deal with it later. But I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to have kids. And I'm grateful that it's not hindering me from having kids, but I don't want to feel like I have to deal with it later. I want to know what it is now don't and what I can do. affect next. pregnancy somehow? Because I remember my aunt had them and the baby came out really small. Like, doesn't that... Uh, why you know what? Tanika, I don't know what you would say, but I don't think so. From what my doctors have told me, and I've gone to like four or five, they have said that in some cases they impede on fertility. In some cases they don't, depending on where they are in your uterus, with whether they're inside of your uterus or outside of your uterus. Yeah, and, and like I said, I, I really hope that we, we have an opportunity to continue this conversation. So definitely needs to be a follow-up with a doctor on and a holistic exactly. practitioner. <laughs> Exactly. Some of our OBGYN partners. Um, But once again, I can speak to my mother's experience. I can speak to my experience in that, you know, since I um, have had surgery, my fibroids are back. Um, And the the method that Mabel talked about is called uh, wait and watch, watch and wait. Watch and wait. Yeah. um, Doctors do do that. They they're kind of like, well, they're small right now. Um, so let's just see if you're trying to get pregnant, um, go ahead and do that. Um, one of our board members in DC, um, had three fibroids 
and had a baby. Um, she just delivered her beautiful little baby girl. Um, Congratulations. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll definitely pass that along. But so she can, there are variations, but then you, you hear that story and it's like, great, congratulations. But then you hear my mother's story and my mother's story is that her fibroids were in her uterus, um, not on the outside. So because of the twins, so two, two babies inside, there was just not enough space for everybody. So the fibroids grow at the same rate that the baby does. And basically the way she explains it to me is that the fibroids suffocated the baby. Um, so that's why she lost them because apparently you know, uh, babies need estrogen as well because it's it's in our bodies already. So y'all are making me want to go to my doctor's office and have him check every nook and cranny of my uterus. <laughs> I'm glad because <laughs> a part of it. I remember when a doctor told me, "Yeah, your period should be like a tablespoon." Sat, you know, you should be bleeding. Like, what? <laughs> Where? Who? Tablespoon of what? Exactly. So, so yeah. I know. I mean, I, I, we just got to continue this conversation. We have to. And like I said earlier, I think a part of the problem is because there's so many variations. Like it's not like it's, it's um, cancer or something like lupus where it's like, okay, these are the particular symptoms for lupus. If you know you're having this, here's our treatment plan. Because there are women who have fibroids Never bother them. Flat mm -hmm. bellies mm -hmm. are yeah. fine. Um, but I still have fibroids and I still had a baby. But then there are cases like Mabel who, you know, it's just the heavy bleeding. Then there are cases like me, which is heavy bleeding, anemia, bloated belly, and, you know, the possibility of it affecting fertility. Because I will share with you ladies that I've had that surgery 2013 um, 27 removed. They've since come back. And in that time, I still haven't gotten pregnant. And like, why? Uh, who knows? You know, so now I'm like, you know, do we go the IVF route? Do you know, should I be freezing? And I'm older, I'm 39. Um, so, you know, then the conversation can can evolve to, we really need to be telling our women too that yeah egg freezing might be yeah, an i was gonna say i read an article i think a couple years ago last year maybe mabel maybe you forward this is to me where there was like um there's been an uptick in black women freezing their eggs because yeah, women eggs. are um going to school longer and you know kind of indulging in their careers and um are finding right. spouses later and so is this a viable option for black women and of course i saw the comments and you had the old school women who were like man you better have them babies early yeah yeah, yeah. and then it's just like a whole bunch of other people who were like no i agree with it but it's too expensive and yeah um, a lot of a lot of um differences in how we approach the egg freezing thing um, right right it is it is a very sensitive topic especially when you're at the crossroads of really thinking like it are my fibroids affecting my chance to be a mother 
or 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 not. And I right. think for for some women, I think that's where it that I think that right there is it's where the conversation so starts. Right? And that's when the conversation either starts or it doesn't start. Because I mean, when you when it gets to fertility and, and as a black woman, you can't get pregnant on your own. It's kind of like all of a sudden, if that's where you kind of I think where women we tend to retreat because now it, we take it upon ourselves to see like this has to be my fault. And I and that's where Absolutely. I feel the conversation it needs to be had even more so because it, it's not, you know, like if we are disposed to fibroids in this way, we shouldn't feel ashamed of having yeah. them or having had gone through surgery or having to take alternative, alternative rights, alternative um, ways to get pregnant because of it. So I think that's where I feel like where the line gets a little blurry, where one, it could just be you having this uterine issue or two it could be that this issue is affecting you in a very personal way mm-hmm. not just with your cycle but now you can't you you can't mother a child or your chances are are extremely reduced yeah and think about it like you know <laughs> i might be you know going out on limb here but think about it like we spend so much time before trying <laughs> not to get pregnant mm-hmm. and then you know you your life is set up where it's what you want to do now. And it's like, where are all these issues coming from? Um, so it's just interesting to me how the conversation, um, you know, or how life can change um, like that. Because I never, even with knowing my mother's journey, never thought that I would be in this position mm-hmm. right now where I'm stable, I'm married, and I don't have a child. I really want some research around lifestyle. And um, like, I really do. Like, I just, the, the part of me is like, okay, how much of this is lifestyle and I guess exposure to different things? I don't know. I guess I don't know the numbers for women on the continent versus women in, in the West, black women in the West. But even still, I know women on the continent's lives are changing as well, like lifestyles. Mm-hmm. So I just, oh, yeah. I'm just really interested in knowing what lifestyle changes have happened over the last 50 years or 60 years or even longer that, or has fibroids always been um, an issue? Kind of. I like think it's always been you know? an issue. I think it's always been an issue. I know one of our community members uh, pointed out the other day, like, in the Bible, the woman <laughs> with the issue of blood, did she have oh, a fibroid? Oh, yeah, did she have a fibroid? She, yeah, you know what? I, you know what? That is so funny because I actually use her story as a prayer point because I'm like, I swear this woman had fibroids. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Lord, if I could just touch the hem of your garment. I'm telling you. I am telling you. So it's like, you know, <laughs> there, there are so many. I, I feel like it so goes so far back. And I, I think about how did those women deal with it? I'm like, mommy, like growing up in Jamaica, like, no, you can't run to CVS and, and get past. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, but, and, you know, yeah. all sorts of, of ways that they made it happen. But <laughs> You know, I I would really love to do that research with you, Clarissa, because um, what lifestyle changes have been made? And, you know, Mabel and I obviously can speak to, you know, the things that we've done. um, 
but you know, when my when I ask my husband to hold my purse now and he has to or like, hey babe, put my phone in my purse and he sees a pad in there, it's like nothing. You know what I mean? Because that's just what it is. Or when I come in his car and, you know, like put a towel down, like but like what is that like? What is that like dating? Women who are dating, what is that like for college students? What is that like for There needs to be a whole white paper. Yeah, <laughs> it we does. Sure good. Yeah, it what does. is that like for homeless women? Mm. Yeah, like are we, are we now to think that homeless women don't have fibroids too? Mm. Come on, like okay, yeah. yep. what is happening with them? Well, uh, I want to end this podcast on a good note. So, <laughs> yeah. well, you know what, Clarissa? Let me say this: if if I could end the podcast this way, and I, you know, in my desperation to know more about other Black women going through this, I. I have sought out blogs and videos on YouTube and I was on Instagram one day and I just typed, I just typed in the hashtag fibroids and I just scrolled until I saw something that caught my eye and I saw uh, a picture of women in white dresses and I was like, oh, they're all black they're all in white. Let me look at this. Why is it hashtag fibroids? And that's how I came across the white dress project and I've been following and I look forward to, you know, learning more about the chapter and, I pray if I can get a chance to really talk to, reach out to my African community and, you know, because our, our issues when it comes to sharing is, is, is roots rooted. It's very deep. And, and I have been scolded at times for talking a little too much about fibroids or pushing, you know, other girls to go and check themselves out because, you know, you don't talk about those things. Right. Right. And, um, but yet I, I still do it. I'm going to still talk about it anyway, because if someone had told me, I swear I would have, I would have looked into it much sooner. And I hope that in some way I can bring a few more of our girls from the continent to this chapter. If, if they would like to learn more about, um, fibroids, but I also thought what was so powerful about the white dress project was that, um, in Ghanaian culture, when you go through a situation, something really grievous or difficult, and you survive or you overcome, the way we go to celebrate at church is that you wear white. And oh, wow. everybody puts on their white up and down. We call it kaba and slits. <laughs> and, and you tell all of your friends who are coming to church to celebrate with you, that is the, the color that's the color code. We love the color code in Ghanaian right. culture. And white, <laughs> white is the color for victory. It's the color for overcoming. And it's the, when you wear it, that's when people come to know and realize like, oh, something, something good has happened to this person. It's a color for a testimony. And I thought that it was such a great connection to your choice of color for fibroid um, awareness in the black community, because I believe with what you're doing, it is going to be a, a, a testimony for someone. It's going to be a chance for someone to also wear white on that beautiful so Sunday. So we're going to see um, women in and slit on yes. uh, the hashtag fibroids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm so going to post that about Ghanaian culture, because I believe that that is amazing. And I um, thank you so much for saying that because it encourages us so much because I tell you, ladies, that this work is not easy. It's, I just feel so good that, Mabel, you found us and you were encouraged by us and you were proud of us. Um, 
you know, because the white does represent hope. Obviously, when you're on your period, no, you can't wear white. Mm -hmm. But a symbol that one day we believe that we will get to the point where we have answers and that we can wear white proudly and that we can, you know, not be um, disabled by this epidemic. Um, so thank you so much for saying that. That like gives me just a world of encouragement. And, and to know that we always use the word white and hope, but to know that we can now use white and victory is another. Awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, Tanika, why don't you go ahead and tell us how uh, people can find you and your project and where you're at? Yeah, so, um, so Mabel found us on Instagram, which is at We Can Wear White. Uh, we are on Twitter at We Can underscore Wear White. And on Facebook, we are uh, The White Dress Project, colon, We Can Wear White. Um, so you can find us anywhere. Um, the cool thing about us is if you just type in The White Dress Project, Google, it should come up um, because we're very proud that we are one of the few grassroots organizations um, that I think is getting a lot of um, notoriety about the work that we're doing. Um, everyone can reach out to us via email, We Can Wear White at Gmail. Um, we love to hear stories, um, and that's what we try to do through our social media is share stories um, of hope and encouragement. And sometimes just like, hey, girl, we know what you're going through, like power through, you know, so that's that's the purpose. We don't claim to be doctors. Um, we have doctors at our disposal um, that we often um, lend our community to, um, but it's so important to to have conversations with doctors and have conversations with your girlfriends and just be em empowered and encouraged that we're not going through this alone and that we are, you know, working to make sure that the, the people that are in charge and have the purse strings um, really understand why this is necessary. Yeah. Uh, Tanika, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really hope that we can have a part two or a second conversation with um, a holistic doctor and um, um, a, you know, a traditional um, cons uh, do doctor around the subject of you know, uterine fibroids. Mabel, thank you for sharing your story, both of you, um, and making this happen. This was awesome. That wraps up another edition of the Sacropolitan Life podcast. For more tips on curating a life you love, visit thesacropolitanlife.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. The more you comment, the higher we rank, which makes it easier for people to find us. Have questions or comments? Tweet me at Life. Till next episode, this is Clarissa Banner reminding you to stay grounded in love, truth, and culture. Peace.